Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BloodyDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels weekly horror video game podcast that brings you a new horrifying episode every Saturday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I am Neil Bow. And this week, in honor of Alien Day, the anniversary of Ridley Scott's horror sci-fi classic franchise, we're chatting about one of the most terrifying survival horror games ever made, Alien Isolation. And fair warning, we'll be delving into all manner of spoilers in regards to the game. So Neil, I guess before we chat about Alien Isolation, we should probably chat about kind of our first exposure to the, uh, the seminal 1979 space horror film Alien that kickstarted the franchise. Do you kind of remember the first time you uh, saw the film? It's a bit swimmy with the first film because early memories for me mostly revolve around the second and third. You know, it's like, so I'm not sure to this day whether I saw it, the first film first, but it's weird. It's one of those, I'm sure I remember seeing it I don't remember in what order, but I'm sure I was pretty established on what Alien was by that point. Because you know, I was obsessed with Aliens. Alien 3, in both of those films, they were both taped off the TV, you know, adverts and all. And for years, it was, you know, probably why I've got such an affection for Alien 3 is due to that just constant re-watching, constant re-watching and uh, finding all the, everything to be quotable. So yeah, I think with that, Alien, I didn't have in possession as much at the time you know I had the novelization you know and read through that and a lot and then yeah so it never used to be like my favourite alien film uh, for a long time and I think it's just with time and age with with just coming back to it I ended up appreciating it more and more I think especially just for the sheer you know balls on them to pull it off what they did because you look at the other end of the spectrum of what Ridley Scott ends up doing with that franchise it's remarkable that they just pulled all this stuff together with such a small budget you know and creativity you know Scott and you know James Cameron both sort of come from that same stock in that regard where they you know they have a creativity to them we saw it with uh, you know Cameron you know he helped out John Carpenter with stuff like Escape from New York and doing stuff on there with the miniatures and the uh, the wireframe work for the computers. And, yeah, Scott had that same sort of noose of getting, you know, Geiger in to do that design, and, which, you know, without that, it, just, it would never have been as memorable. That's quite clear. But at the same time, it's the, it's the spaceship itself, this whole very 70s-style spaceship. You know, and at that po- a point where we've seen stuff like Battlestar Galactica and Star Trek and all these things, it was a bit like that, but also had a griminess and, a, you know, which was suitable for a bunch of engineers in space, which it made sense. Something that always baffled me with the uh, later films, um, that supposedly prequels, is that they are all much more high tech, you know, than this. Obviously, engineers are not going to have as high a tech, but it's, it just seems very odd. If you're going to do a prequel for your own film, maybe sort of keep that ball rolling, you know, a bit. Yeah, it's there's so much you could say about it, but I'm sure we'll come up to it, comparisons with it as we talk about isolation. What about you? Uh, when did you first get into the Zeno? Uh, so I had a similar experience in that, like my grandparents introduced it to me, and they showed me Aliens first, right? Because mm. it was the same kind of thing where oh, they had recorded off cable with advertisements and all, and so that was how that was like my introduction. And as a little kid. I was like, of course, I was enamored with it, right? That idea yeah. that it was like this. It was basically, it is Marines in space. It's war in space with aliens. And so I was taken with that. And then you kind of have these Marines that are like the shit talkers and whatnot. They've got the kind of one-liners. <laughs> uh, 
with the shotgun, oh, I keep this for close encounters and little moments like that. There were so many of those quotable moments that I just would watch it over and over and over again. And then I remember being introduced to Alien shortly after. But as a kid, I was like, well, this doesn't have anything that was in Aliens, right? (laughs) There's so few. There's one alien and there's no guns type thing. So, of course, the older I got and the more appreciation and kind of becoming more entrenched within the horror genre, I, of course, had a much greater appreciation for it. And the film itself has aged really beautifully in that regard. And I totally get what you mean about the aesthetic standing out, right? Mm -hmm. Usually at least for me, like a lot of the sci-fi I watched growing up, it was all very kind of glamorous. They have worked out a lot of the kinks and the bugs of deep space travel. And yet Alien is a grimy film throughout the, uh, um, in terms of just like the designs of the ship. And it feels very dated. And of course, because it is the 70s vision of what the future would be like. And there's something about that that is very compelling in that it really feels like a film out of time, but at the same time, it feels very plausible. It doesn't have a lot of the glitz and the glam that most sci-fi does, which feels so fantastical as if we'll never get there. And there's something very, and I I guess it ties into the, the core group of characters that are in Alien, but there's this very sort of rugged, blue collar feel to alien yeah this idea that nobody is taken with deep space travel if anything everybody is over the uh whatever kind of allure there used to be about deep space travel it's kind of like this is just a job it sucks that we have to go into hypersleep to get there yeah we just want to go home and that's an element to the film that i really love that i don't know necessarily that the other films ever captured as well not that they didn't have plenty of uh, creative experiments with the old uh, Xenos that were introduced. Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, the background of the whole Boyer and Yutani thing starts to become more prevalent, obviously, with the sequels. And I think Isolation picks up a lot of that as well. This whole idea of these companies and that's the world building in itself. They are responsible for all this. And Isolation branches out further by having other companies involved and who clearly um, you can see why they didn't last <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> but yeah it, it's always a fascinating world to me Alien I've, you know, I'm obsessed with the series anyway as it as that is mainly down to Aliens and Alien pretty when I was younger and then playing stuff like uh, Alien vs Predator on the Atari Jaguar and uh, the PC game version of it as well and I think even Alien 3, the Mega Drive SNES title that there was as well was quite interesting. But um, it's, Alien games have always been a bit tricky to do because the risk involved in trying to do... You, in the past, doing one Alien doesn't really work. You know, it's like, It gets a bit... How do you make that work without having other things going on? And so you've got lots of game is based more on alien aliens than you did on alien <laughs> quite fittingly just before isolation of course we had the whole debacle with aliens colonial marines which uh yeah it, it was fan service to the hilt in a lot of ways but it is the operation raccoon city of the alien <laughs> video games franchise you know it's like absolutely it it takes everything from aliens it shows you all this alien space stuff but does it, its own way bring people back from the dead and just yeah just does some very odd things and, and tends to be a bloody awful game as well <laughs> yeah i mean the angle that creative assembly took with alien isolation this idea hey we're gonna stray from what has been done in the past which was very action oriented hmm. and it was more about 
let's face you off against a horde of xenomorphs, right? There's kind of that appeal, I suppose, in the same way that child, uh, childhood Jay had, where he's like, oh, I can see so many aliens at once getting blown to bits and whatnot. But when you stretch that out into like a 10-hour, 15-hour game or whatever, after a while, there isn't a lot of layers in terms of depth to that. No. And when that is sort of the only thing to do in those types of games, that wears off pretty quickly. And so to see Creative Assembly really take a stealth approach, which sounds bizarre in a lot of ways, mm. and make it stretched out over the course of however long the game is, and then apply multiple layers of world building of different fa uh, faculties of gameplay. Like you say, it's stealth, but there is a different kind of like ebb and flow to it in a way that is very refreshing. And again, like saying, oh, we're going to make a game with one alien. That sounds like it'd be entertaining for like the length of a demo hmm. and the ability to, for them to flesh out that world in a way that and also the enemy variety is just it remains very remarkable that they were able to take this concept that should not have worked and it becomes a fantastic companion piece to Alien and Aliens. Yeah, and it takes a lot of uh, notes from survival horror in general you know, in terms of you have to have your fodder enemies, if you will, but there will be some big bad one that will keep coming back and in this case it's one of the original big bads you know in the xenomorph and that's key to why it works you know so you never feel safe ever but yeah we'll get to that uh, i suppose we should sort of go into what the, what's happening why what's the game about why is it why are there aliens <laughs> in space again yeah so the game picks up 15 years after alien and it occurs between Alien and Aliens, and you're put into the work boots of uh, Ellen Ripley's daughter, Amanda, and she's kind of grappling with this loss that she's never been able to have any real closure for, right? She's mm -hmm. working on a station out in space, much like her mother did, and yet you can tell just from the brief introduction to her that she's never quite moved on from that. And lo and behold, she gets the opportunity to travel to this station called Sevastopol that has recovered the flight recorder of the doomed Nostromo vessel from Alien, but... Naturally, when Amanda and her crew arrive, there's a, a certain extraterrestrial life form waiting for them on the station. And I want to talk about, before we get into what makes this game so fantastic, the first hour of the game, because you were you said on Twitter how well that holds up for yeah. you, and it holds up incredibly well for me as well. And I kind of just wanted to pick your brain about what about that opening hour has really lasted the test of time for you. Right, so I think key to this is... It understands the source material so well, which, as we were saying earlier, is often a problem with alien games. Um, you throw a bunch of aliens in there for a start, you know, that it becomes meaningless after a while when you shot a hundred of them. They are no longer threatening. They are no longer on your mind constantly. As a, they're a bothersome fly. That's it. Here, that ends up being different. But before all that happens, much like the original alien film, before anything really significant happens, you're just wandering around a place. Yes, you know, you're wandering around a place because you know, you got blown out of space into it and, and uh, ended up stranded there. But yeah, going around this you know, derelict place now, the, the Sevastopol, which has seen better days and there's obviously something wrong. And, but you're getting this world building going on as you sort of roam around in the early hour. You know, seeing all about because it's uh, a company called Seeks and that runs Sevastopol. Uh, they're, not, they're like the 
pound shop version of Wayne and Yutani at this point. You know, <laughs> their androids aren't as good, their, their services aren't as good, but they share a lot of designs, you know, in terms of their, how they build their, their space station. So going around this space station that's familiar but new because of the, obviously being a different company that's built it and different way of doing things, it's got atmosphere in spades. It, it's unreal how you go around this place and it, you just feel a sense of being back there in that time of the original alien universe. Of, you know, it feels like a place where people are supposed to be in. You know, the best video game worlds in immersive sims and such and survival horror games tend to have these great places where you can you know they're small in some senses but you get a real sense of place with them and with Sevastopol you do get that it's already in disrepair and it's getting worse as you go along but now you're getting thrown into this something else is going on the crew that are here are panicking and nobody's very friendly and the androids look a bit shifty (laughs) you know all this has happened and before you know it it, you've been wandering around having a nice drink of the atmosphere and then you get a couple of glimpses of the Xeno you know the first when you the guy you team up with gets nailed by uh, as you escape from some frightened uh, survivors and then of course later it just I was saying this before, it, it never gets to the point where you feel like you're safe in that first hour. Even though you know the alien isn't going to be coming, you know it doesn't come to a set point. And you know that even when it does then, it doesn't really turn up for a bit after that. But <laughs> all the same, it's just like you forget the point where it's going to come out and ruin your day. And like, even on this most recent playthrough again, it's like, I got around thinking, that doesn't come around for a while yet, does it? Like that. And I went to a room, and of course, then the, the cutscene, the, the in game cutscene, if you will, happens where it drops from the ceiling. I was like, oh shit, it's happening already. <laughs> it's like, it's like, because, and that's not a crit- criticism of the game, it's just the fact that that's when you know it's gone from, oh, I'd really like just to wander around this place for a bit longer. And, you know, praise very similar to that which came out later it's, you know, it's space station Talos 1 it's really fun to sort of unearth the life behind it you know and the people who work there but unfortunately every five seconds you're going to end up fighting something or having to run from something uh, but here at least they give you the luxury of drinking it all in for a while and really setting the scene up and it, it follows that sedate pace of Alien in that respect up to the point where things change and then you know it becomes a very different game um but having at least at that point taught you everything you need to know at that point yeah they really have crafted this perfect haunted house in space in a lot of ways right they really understand that for this environment to be terrifying you're not going to spend a majority of it just running around obviously because as we learn the further into the game you get running around in sound management is kind of a big deal. Like, you can't be doing that, otherwise you're going to attract the uh, the big boogeyman that's creeping around in the vents. But in having you really kind of soak in that atmosphere and allow the environment to tell the story, you don't know why the station has fallen into such disrepair and necessarily what's happened, but you start to pick up on little clues, right? You see kind of 
graffiti on the walls. You see fuck the marshals written everywhere. You start to learn that there has been this kind of civil unrest going on in the station. Of course, in the end, you know that the xenomorphs are more than likely uh, taking advantage of this opportunity in the chaos and whatnot to use it as a hunting ground. But I think that this is why the stealth element plays such a big role in why the atmosphere and sort of the opening hour of the game is so strong, the game overall being strong, is that you can't let atmosphere soak in when you've got a pulse rifle and you're mowing through hordes and hordes of xenomorphs in the opening moments, right? You're too busy on adjusting your aim and things like that, and you're not really soaking in the atmosphere because you're too busy kind of like having xenomorphs soak up your bullets. Um, And I think that that app, like you said, not knowing when the xenomorph is going to show up throughout the course of the game, but even in that opening moment when you know, okay, he's not going to show up at this moment. It's still terrifying, and a big part of that is because of, like, the sound design. That is the thing that scares me before the xenomorph even shows up, even when it does end up showing up periodically later in the game. It's just listening to the sounds to the degree that when you walk by a door, maybe you walk by it and you're not looking at it and it opens and you hear the beeping, you almost jump out of your skin because... The vents, the, the circular vents, yeah. are, they're terrible for that. And at times you don't know it's there and then suddenly you hear a vent going and you're like, did I do that or was that something else? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know... You start to second guess yourself. Yeah, so you'll bring out the tracker and you won't, you start not trusting the tracker at that to the point where when it does finally show something, you're kind of like, oh, <laughs> is this happening? Is it not? Yeah, it's like, and then... But even that first, uh, I think it is after the first guy you link up with Axel when he gets killed, they don't even show you the xenomorph. You see its tail pierce his chest and then he gets sucked through one of the vents and you just see kind of like the blood trail, but they still don't show you the xenomorph. And then I think right after that moment, you have to wait for your first tram car. And of course, I've played this now two or three times and I know the xenomorph never shows up, but waiting for the tram car to pull up and then hearing it scream and hearing the pipes thudding and everything, it is a nerve-wracking moment, even though we know that it is a moment that you will survive 100% of the time. Yeah, That it really is remarkable to experience that same feeling of fear on my second or third replay. Yeah, because it's um, something I can't say per se, something like Resident Evil games, where you kind of know where you're safe as standard. And that some of that's just down to how many times you've gone through such things, but... You know, at the same time, you could say that evading in isolation, you know where you should be safe. But the fact that, like, they're very quick to tell you early on that you won't be able to save if anything's near you, you know, that's, you know, that's, you know, you forget that after a while because it doesn't really become a problem until later. And it's like, and then the, the first time you go up to save the game, that very sort of in universe way of just clunking in a card and doing that, and you have to wait in real time for it to you know, do its little free beats and so you can save. And the first time it just happens where it's like, no, there's something near you. It's like, you can't do it. It's like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Where is it? What is it? It's like, yeah, it's just, as you were saying though, the um, the sound design is such a big part of that, isn't it? Because you hear every little rumble and thump in every vent and it isn't, yeah, you know, if you've ever been around you know, that sort of industrial stuff it you you do hear things like that generally you know it's like you don't just it doesn't just happen because someone's climbing around the vent you know that they will expand and, and shrink and make those noises because the, the changes in temperature and it, it's a very sneaky way to play with you you know and that couple of other noises as you said you hear around the place really just keep you on edge all the time and 
like you said, there, there are times where they push the alien away quite deliberately for a while. And, you know, obviously bring in other enemies for a bit. And even then, you're still like, you've always got in the back of your mind, I don't want to make too much noise here. I don't want to, because I, I, it could it could come here. It could. And you just don't want to test it. And it's like the game sort of beats you into submission with the idea that one of these times it's going to come for you if you make too much noise, even though you know it shouldn't. And I think that the further into the game you progress when they, because initially you kind of see the looters, if you will, that are the main threat, and then yeah. you kind of have the working Joes. And then, of course, we get that fantastic moment where the alien drops down from the vent for the first time. But then it starts to intermingle all the varieties of enemies in a really interesting way mm. that I think it pushes you, the player to like the limits of their fear because you have to decide how much you want to interact with a specific enemy because like you said, if there's a lull in terms of like the alien showing up, okay, I've got two looters here. I could take them out quickly with my pistol or I could distract them. But at the same time, if I do anything to them, potentially, it will summon the alien. And that, I think, is kind of the true essence of fear, right? Because yeah. there are some moments where it's... L- it's less than likely that the alien will show up because of just where you are uh, in a specific part of the map. But at the same time, it's always in the back of your head. Yeah. And that carries with you throughout the entire game. Um, It was interesting. I was reading some reviews uh, that came out when this was initially released back in 2014. And some people had said that, that they didn't experience that, that they kind of became overstimulated by the alien and they were kind of just like, okay, yeah, it's going to show up and whatever. But again, like, it's a testament to how strong the sound design and the environments are that I was like jumping at shadows in between moments when the alien was going to show up or even like the uh, the working Joes. They're so quiet until they say something and they're right behind you. Mm. Um, and so I found that there was this fantastic ebb and flow between the varieties of enemies and then having them all interact with one another in a similar environment that really gave the game the ability to have the fear never become... Uh, sort of diluted Hmm. you know it's kind of like the comparison that we always make to like a horror film is that you don't want to show everything early on because then by the end of the film it's no longer scary but it's remarkable to me that within a a 10 or 15 hour game that for me and it sounds like for you that you never really lose that sense of fear and i think that that's obviously intentional with the fact that you're never really given a sense of empowerment Hmm. you know like a lot of horror games in terms of like introducing tools and items and things like that, you are just gaining periodic bits of empowerment. Like in Resident Evil, you start with a knife and a pistol, shotgun, machine gun, you find some type of explosive and you are starting to feel more and more empowered and you're becoming more bold probably in your actions to a certain degree. But in Alien Isolation, you never get that. And that I think is truly key to allowing the horror to really sustain throughout the entire course of the game. Yeah, and even when you do get uh, rudimentary weapons, such as the bolt gun and the flamethrower. You know, the, they only have a limited use. You know, the the flamethrower will only make the alien run away for a bit, and usually not for very long. Uh, the bolt gun can take out a working Joe, nice if you get the headshot. But if you even slightly don't line that up right, the game doesn't care. It's not going to sort of go, nah, you're close enough, it's all right. <laughs> uh, I mean, the amount of times you should miss almost point blank because you desperately like, if they're coming for you, you're trying to go backwards, knowing that the reload time is so long on that thing and just missing and it's horrid. <laughs> and so that's where it's good. It, it gives you something that's very powerful, but, you know, it doesn't really work as a 
an ass-kicking machine. It's just, right. it's there as a last resort when you need it. And yeah, and I think that the way the combat encounters are structured are, is that sure, if you use the magnum or a shotgun on one of the human ele- enemies, or even a working Joe to a certain extent, but with the working Joes, it only ever really just uh, makes them stumble. Yeah. You still never really have the upper hand because there's always more of them than you or the the purposefully slow reload time, right? Yeah. With the handgun, you have to load each and every single round into the gun in a very slow manner. And that's true, obviously, with both of the other firearms. And I love that the way it's set up, the game, yes, sure, you can use weapons and you can purposefully engage in combat, but it never really pushes you to do that. I think there might be one or two instances where you're getting overwhelmed purposefully. They throw, yeah. like when you're in the uh, the nuclear plant at the very end or when you come across like face huggers mm-hmm. or something. But you have that option, but it's never in your best interest to because guns never really give you anything more than a momentary edge over an encounter. Nothing is foolproof. If, you, if your aim is slightly off, right, you're going to get screwed. You're going to get yeah. grabbed. Same thing with the different types of lures that you can use, which is like the noisemaker or a flare or even an EMP, right? There's so many little ducks and things like that in the ceiling and the architecture. If you miss throw once, you can completely screw yourself because you could just attract them right to you. And that's an element that I think, again, when you're coupling with the fact that you're so constantly preoccupied with not making noise, you're always on edge. And it makes those each instance of that very heightened in a way that... I don't know that a lot of uh, stealth games are. Yeah, I mean, in that your initial playthrough, you just get so cautious that the game does take a few extra hours, really, because you're just so slow the whole way through. I think mean, you know, as you go through, you do start to just be a little bolder and uh, on a second and third playthrough, because it's like, wow, oh, yeah, I, I know that I can kind of run for a bit and be all right here. Uh, and uh, so, well, you know, the alien isn't going to show up for a bit where it's a working Joe type situation, you can just rush through them a bit more because you kind of have to, because fighting them is just really not an option most of the time. Yeah, so it works when it works with that. Yeah, and I love that they have the boogeyman with being the xenomorph. You can't Hmm. kill it, even though you can begin to craft more and more powerful items, that being like the Molotov or the uh, pipe Hmm. bomb, right? And of course, it's a risk-reward thing, right? If you want to build those, you're going to need more components more scrap metal, so you're going to have to be bolder and searching out different parts of the environment. And yet, they only give you a brief reprieve. I would say in the later parts of the game, a Molotov or a pipe bomb only grants you about 30 seconds to catch your breath before the Xenomorph is going to come back and start hunting for you again and kind of hunting based off of sight and sound. And of course, it's adapting throughout the game in terms of like, or at least maybe section to section uh, in terms of just like reacting to your Mm. strategy so that way after the first or second time, after a while, it might not go for that flare. It might not go for that noise maker and things of that like. And that's something that really adds an unknowing quality to it. Considering, again, the daunting task of having a single, again, like being the titlier boogeyman in a lot of ways, having a single enemy that is unkillable and yet is terrifying throughout every single instance yeah. that you encounter it. Um, and even when you're earning new tools, like when you get the flamethrower, you're initially you're like, oh, well, all bets are off now. I'm indestructible. And then you realize how quickly it pisses through fuel, how, again, it only grants you 15 or 30 seconds reprieve before the xenomorph comes charging back and you hear it scream around a corner yeah. or something. <laughs> it really does. It's just, it, it is a meant more as a defensive measure rather than an attack. 
And it, for every weapon, it's true. It's like there's a consequence for using it. You know, with the flame for it's like yeah, you can draw them away for a bit, but you're using fuel, and you might need that later at the point that's more important. But you never know if that's going to be an important point because the alien can be so unpredictable. Um, you know, the same is true of the the handgun and such. It is that you know, firing off is a risk because it's noisy. You know, it's like. So yeah, it could get you out of a sticky situation, but you're often just better off running and letting them do the firing because if they do the firing, there's more chance that the alien comes after them instead. Well, that's something that I really love in that, again, like I kind of said earlier, this idea that you always have the option to use tools in the way that you Mm. see fit, right? Nothing is single use. And that is more, that's less about the ways in which you, or maybe the functionality of a gun or a tool, and it's more up to the game having the parameters that it becomes viable to yeah. a certain extent. Like when you have that, uh, it's like the crowbar tool that you have throughout the game. Sure, the main purpose of that is to unlock those uh, special mm-hmm. door locks, right, that you find early on or throughout the course of the game. But you can also, you can attack working Joes with it, not very effectively, but you could still potentially do that. You can take out human enemies but also you can use it to bait the alien to where other humans are, right? This idea you can bang a door or bang a wall and then go hide. And then the xenomorph shows up and it kills two or three looters that would have opened fire on you had they seen you. And so that's an element that I think is really ingenious in giving the player a level of freedom that a lot of stealth games, I think, claim to have. But generally it's, you have two or three avenues and that's it. Whereas you can use each of the tools given in a variety of ways either offensively or defensively though of course defensively yeah. tends to uh tends to work a little bit better but that's an element that i really love and um something that i just picked up on like my second or third playthrough was using flares as bait for whatever reason i never use mm. them as bait my first time probably because i was so preoccupied with uh, light management yeah. not wanting to attract attention and so i would just throw them this the other night when i was playing i'd throw them and bait things and i was like oh this is such a fantastic use of something that once the initial fear maybe that you have kind of dispels a little bit, then you can start to experiment more and you get more satisfying moments. Like I baited a xenomorph right into a crowd of humans and took them all out and saved me from having to, uh, having to throw a Molotov or something or, uh, have a uh, prolonged stealth section. Yeah. It's always there in in your mind to sort of cut a corner here and there because it's so methodically paced. It's a game that you, that you do get the occasion of it where you're a bit impatient. And you're like, you know, I want, I want to get through this. You know, ordinarily you'd be like, I, I could just leave these people and just go around. But sometimes it's just like, I haven't got many, many bullets here or I haven't got much to health or whatever. I really need to get around here without any fuss. And it's been ages since I saved. And, like, and then having that manual save system is such a big part of the risk reward you know and be cautious about things because if it was just an auto save system you'd be like oh well I'll try whatever happens and see, see how it goes here it's a case of like you've got to be careful especially when it's been a while you, you don't want to go dragging yourself all the way back through a section especially if it's been painfully hard to get through already knowing that you know the alien may not react the same way this time or show up in the same places means it's not like you can cover it. Well, I know what will happen this time. You know, it's that, that again is the beauty of the alien itself is that it just can do a different thing if you do come back to do a section again. And there are so many instances too where I found 
awkwardnesses in terms of the uh, the AI, right? Because it's not timed specifically, mm. right? It's not tied into a quick save or an auto save or something like that. And there's one in, I think it's the second time you have to ride a tram car. I, for whatever reason, I was like, oh, I just left my controller there without pausing and I had to check my phone or whatever. And then the tram car shows up and there's an alien that drops down right away and runs onto the tram car with me and grabs me. And I was like, what the hell is that? That never happened before. <laughs> and then another instance, I, I, something similar happened and the tram car showed up and there were looters on it. And I was like, this has never happened before. And so I love sort of the little awkward AI moments that are maybe they're kind of like inconsistencies, yeah. but at the same time, I don't know if it's intentional to they have those moments triggered to like push the player to do something or if it's just like it's on a loop and you got to the end of a loop that you've never seen before type thing. But it adds, even though those instances aren't very frequent throughout the game, or at least in my experience, it adds an unknowing quality yeah. to it, which is not something that you can say. Again, like you were talking about in Resident Evil, maybe on certain replays, certain moments don't really have the same effect on you because you know what to expect. You know what to anticipate and nothing is going to change from that script. But to have an unknowing script, I think, really fuels, of course, the terror in a survival horror game that you never know what to expect. And if you decide to check your phone in between while you're playing or something and not pause, there's a chance you can get fucked. And that's a, a fantastic feeling uh, to have when you're playing a horror game, even if it means you have to maybe do a reload. But um, one thing in terms of before we move on from sort of the tools and the weapons that you have at your disposal... The fact that combat is the least viable option in encounters really just highlights how key the motion tracker yeah. is. And that's an element that I think, again, you want to talk about maybe like Easter eggs or how um, how ingrained Alien Isolation feels in Ridley Scott's vision of the original film. And then, of course, the extension of that being Aliens. I mean, they nail the motion tracker, of course, by the way mm -hmm. it looks, by the way it sounds, but also just in the way that it is employed. And again, that really ties into the um, sound design in a lot of ways as well, but even the sort of unspecific nature of it never signifies whether the alien or the enemy that you're seeing, like the movement, it never tells you whether it's on hmm. level ground with you or whether it's above you. And that's so key because I think that ties into like in Aliens, right? When they're using yeah. the motion tracker, they're like, they're inside the room and they're like, I don't see anything. And of course they're in the ceiling. Like that recreating little moments like that is not only fantastic but it further reinforces that you have to be listening like i couldn't imagine playing isolation without headphones yeah. this idea that you have to be listening for what's happening above you what's happening potentially in the pipes next to you or the vents next to you and i mean there's so few games i think usually you're just listening for an enemy or a killer that's hunting you to be like talking to himself yeah. or something like that or a door opening Whereas with this, it could be something as subtle as a thud above you or a roar far away, which indicates kind of what type of behavior the alien AI is embedding itself in, which is uh, really makes you have to have keen ears. Otherwise, you're not uh, you're not long for the Sylvester. Yeah, station. and I think even there are occasions where you kind of have to look where you're going as well, because there are visual cues to say that an alien, the alien might be hiding an event nearby. Uh, going back to what you were saying about things being different on a second time round or, or, or things of um, I remember going through a room after doing some big task and there's an event just before you go out the door and the first time I'd done it it was fine I just walked out the room no problem and I had to stop playing and come back to it and of course it reloaded back inside the room and 
yeah, as I was going out, I failed to notice that the, the drool was there coming from the ceiling, and from there, and of course walked under it and got. Yeah, uh, <laughs> jump scares aren't really this game's thing, but when it does it, it's like Christ Almighty. My heart jumps into my mouth very much at that point when it's like when you walk under it's like suddenly you just get pulled up and oh my god Christ like that and yet from that point on I made sure I checked every single event <laughs> to check if anything was happening I love those that inclusion though because they are avoidable and though even when you do get killed by them knowing that they're avoidable it almost kind of softens the yeah. blow in a way because it just reinforces the fact that okay you just need to be more careful it points out a flaw in what you're doing and they are detectable by seeing but also hearing like the other night i was replaying a section where there's a i believe there's a meltdown of some sort and you have to and like the alarms are going off and all hell is being raised and i'm so terrified that the alien is going to show up because of the alarms that i'm like oh shit i have to book it to the elevator but the alien never shows up and that's purposeful because it's supposed to debalance the player and kind of like make them more fearful than they should be so that way they aren't monitoring all the vents when they're running through, which is your first yeah. inclination. And being able to not only see the drool, but then hear it going like pitter-patter on the ground the closer you get, I mean, that's just really an ingenious marriage of not only environmental design, of kind of like jump scare design. Also, like you said, there aren't a lot of jump scares, but that is one of them. And I think that it's more effective than... It's a doing it a disservice to call it a jump scare, but it, it is so sudden and so final uh, that to call it something else would not do it justice. But um, also just like the sound design, again, really, you have to have all your faculties about you, despite the fact that you're probably terrified of being hunted. And there's that perpetual state of being hunted in that there is no safe haven, really. Even when you find the save room, or, or not the save room, but a save box, you still have to wait three seconds. There's no instant save or anything like that. And I mean, that sense of um, the sense of danger is always nipping yeah. at your heels. Yeah, it really is. It's, and, you know, it's a key part of the earlier films is this whole sense of you're never quite sure what you're seeing, you're never sure what you're hearing. You know, things will look and sound like they're one thing but aren't. You know, Alien 3 does it, Aliens does it, you know, even Alien does it. There are just aspects of that where you see that happen, hear that happen. And, you know, you, yeah, it's a key thing in the film. As I said, you see that you know, at times an alien will be hiding somewhere very close by and you don't see it. Even when you know where to look, you know, in terms of the film itself, you can see why they may have think, oh, maybe that didn't quite look like that. You think at the end of Alien where she's about to leave on in the and escape from to another Stromo and it's hiding in there. Or you know, the key part of Aliens where just after the uh, chest burst that happens in the hive and you know the, the aliens in the wall and just sort of comes out and you know the familiar shapes because everything looks like that shape like ah oh, it's like stuff like that I like stuff like that about it and it's um again just another little thing that sort of carries over yeah and something that I kind of want to circle back to that you had mentioned is just how in line the Sevastopol station is with Ridley Scott's vision of a like lo-fi yeah. tech future Right, it's kind of this very a mundane vision of the future. There's no glitz and glam to anything, and something that I am continually impressed with is just how they're able to make this station interest an interesting environment to explore for as long as yeah. we do. Right, because again, it is very this dark, dingy. Um, it's not 
glamorous at all. There aren't a lot of, obviously there's little nuances to each environment, whether it's the medical wing or the uh, nuclear reactor later in the film. And of course you do go out, uh, outside at one point, but at the same time, it is kind of like a generic space station, but it's able to evoke so much personality in just how mundane yeah. it is and purposefully so. Um, and I'm curious, just kind of like for you, what about the sort of environment really stands up to this being a 15 hour game that doesn't necessarily have a great deal of variety. And yet it's able to really sustain your um, sort of like being captivated by exploring the alien universe in a new way. I think it comes down to a change in size in terms of your environment. You, know, you go from being very claustrophobic events and small, you know, in the lower parts of the ship where you know, station where it's, you know, all open, you know, all, all open wires and cables flowing everywhere, and then you get to higher places. You know, it's a bit more sophisticated, but obviously the lights down and everything else being a bit, you know, done and dusted, it makes it very, you know, abandoned. It is a big, you know, ghost house. You know, it, it, it has to be. And that, again, this is another part. It's very much like Alien. You are in a giant haunted house, essentially, waiting for the thing to jump out on you. And, yeah, because it constantly shifts uh, the environments between these small places, and then there are later, you get to places that are a bit more wide open, and you'd think that would make you feel a bit more safe, but they don't. It's because then you feel a bit too exposed, you know? It's like uh, before you were like, crawling around in a pipe and yeah okay you might see it but you know where you're going to see it if you see it it's going to be in front of you or behind you like that maybe above you if you're lucky <laughs> and, uh, but you get into some of these bigger places and suddenly it's like standing in a giant you know waiting for a sniper to hit you while you're in an open field you know it, you don't know you don't know where you could be if trouble starts you don't know where to run it doesn't feel like there's going to be any real place to hide because it's like where are you going to go the, the, the alien or the working Joe isn't going to see you at that point you know? and I think as the game goes on especially in the last few hours where you know they, they break their rules having one Xenor can start having multiples and the face huggers and other things like that then it becomes a case of chaos uh, you know the, the environment itself becomes a bit more alien because you know you have more of the hive style stuff on the walls and then everything's on fire and suddenly you know the very environment itself becomes more hostile and it's basically pushing you pushing you it's like either you get out of here or it's killing you that's it and it just becomes constantly stressful like that and it's really the only point in the game where you kind of start to be against the idea of staying in this place and wandering around it because much as you know, you've always got something happening to you and chasing you it's always you know you're always engaged in the Sevastopol in terms of looking around it and seeing what stories are about and what's happened and like just the general look of it has as we said that classic Ridley Scott era look and yeah, as you get to the end of the game, it flips that on its head and just said, no, this is it now. It, it, you are basically being pushed out the bottle, if you will, and into the end. And it's like, you know, it does everything it can to sort of 
make this a very unwelcoming, you know, place. You don't have that freedom as you get towards the end so much. It's pretty much like, this is the only place you can go. This is the only place you can go. That's it. That's it. Do this, do that. And it becomes, you know, what was once, you know, oh, you've you got to go over there and find this thing to do that thing. And it'll take you on a big old wander because everything's very slow paced and you don't want to get on the alien's bad side and wake him up. <laughs> and so everything, so you sort of drink it in more. And I think that's where it does very well in the early hours is that you can just appreciate the environment even when you are sort of fearing for what's coming and what might happen. You know, you're given time to appreciate this, you know, this whole world. And because it's a very simplistic, very down-to-earth sort of style, you know, it's got a sort of surrealness to it, you know, where it, it's like, it feels like it should be you, you could just be there like it's it doesn't feel very sci-fi but does in very much the same vein that the original design did and so yeah that constant change up really does help it I know a lot of people that, that are critical of uh, the game say that you know the last few hours are unnecessary and it shouldn't be so long and like that but I think at that point it changes up enough that you really sort of forgive it for it the ending of the game is distinctly different from the beginning, kind of like you said. And if anything, it makes me appreciate the beginning of the game mm. more so. But then at the same time, I'm still appreciative that at the, like you said, when you're getting pushed out of the bottle, it's giving you a new style of experience while still using all the variables that you've been learning throughout the entire course of the game. I mean, a lot of the areas are very non-linear early on in terms of how you want to either flee or avoid different threats, right? You can use yeah. the vents, you can use, you can go underground, or you can kind of just make your way with the freedom that you want and exploring these wider open areas. And even the, even the more claustrophobic areas, there's still a good amount of freedom in how you choose to explore environments. So then by the time I get to the end of the game, when you're reaching this climax and everything is becoming more chaotic and volatile, I appreciate almost I'm getting a reprieve and I'm being pushed in a specific direction. And there's maybe only one or two different routes that you can take. But by that point, we're how many hours into the game now? I'm almost appreciative that it becomes more linear the closer you get to kind of that yeah. finishing line. I think that's not... I don't find that to be a detriment. Again, like I find that to be refreshing. I find that to be, okay, I have familiarized myself with all the variables and now it almost becomes, again, like more cinematic the further towards the ending you get because it's getting it has this massive buildup you have okay now there's not one but you're in a nest now of xenomorphs and facehuggers and it, it everything is becoming more heightened and yet it never loses the true essence of no. an alien right it never becomes aliens even when you are dealing with multiple xenomorphs and facehuggers and even yeah. working I mean with it's them. actually quite in keeping with, with those films as well because you know both alien and aliens end in that way where it is very much a straightforward race to the finish it's like right this is what you've got to do do it you aren't going to be wandering off anywhere else for any subplots here. This is it. You know, and everything's going to be going on around you at the same time, you know, the, you know, whether that is destruction or meltdowns or whatever. And so, yeah, again, very in keeping with the series. And it, yeah, it just, it, it fits for me. And I think I don't really ever question the length of the game. Or it is just because I enjoy my time in it so much in terms of that place and what it is. And I said, as I was saying earlier, it, that and 
praise Talos One, two of my favorite sort of gaming environments, because I just love the idea of space stations like that, where there's a, a history behind them, but things have gone wrong. It's like they're the best sort of places to visit. Comparing it to Talos One is a great example. Again, this idea that you're showing up, it's kind of, again, not that, I mean, Talos One shares similarities with uh, Rapture in that regard, right? And of course, if it's the same developer, but it's more about showing up to somewhere after the initial event, and yet now you have to deal with the ramifications of something that occurred when you had nothing to do with that Mm -hmm. initial event. Um, But in terms of like in keeping with the alien, uh, not chronology, but the alien sort of lore, how do you feel the narrative is in terms of this being crafted as being the companion piece to Alien and Aliens falling kind of smack dab in the middle? What did you think of sort of Amanda Ripley and the narrative that sends her to the Sevestable Station and giving us Alien Isolation? Yeah, I mean, it's entirely plausible that you could fit it in there and change nothing about what has been said because in Aliens, I mean, unless you're watching the director's gut, they don't really go into it very much about her. They just say that she died at this age, that's it, blah, blah, blah. And they would have to have mentioned that she happened to go on a, a journey to Sevastopol and fought aliens because they're not going to tell you any of that. So, And, yeah, I just it, it is an interesting story to tell, and it keeps the Ripley story alive in a different way. And I always think that if they were to reboot the series, that would be a good place to go, you know, in, in terms of films, that, that you could do this this story uh, very much as a, in a film and uh, yeah if, you, if you're talking casting uh, as a, Amanda Ripley someone like Mary Elizabeth Winstead it's just like perfect in my opinion she would be absolutely. the one person who could be uh, Ripley and very much on board with it doing that maybe as it gets towards the end and it starts being multiple stuff I think that isn't so necessary to the story, I think, but then I can see why you don't want to go just doing basic retelling of Alien. You know, you, you want it to be a bit different. So it sort of goes in that middle ground where it's mostly like Alien, then has a bit more aliens to it towards the end without going, you know, full on fighting a queen in a power loader. What's the pity? <laughs> I think that her story is, per, is structurally sound in that it really does provide this great basis for having this middle chapter between the two films and like you said it's very plausible but i found that i really appreciated the the sort of subplot that is going on more so on my replays because i'm a little more relaxed so i'm going to spend more time sort of reading Mm. each computer terminal and scouring emails and listening and taking more risks to search out each and every sort of audio uh, file recording that i can find to really flesh out the story of the Sevastopol. And I think it's funny in your mentioning uh, Talos One, one of the things, one of my complaints of Prey is that I wanted even more of the Mm. backstory of that place and of each of the people that live there, the individuals. I wanted more of that, I think. Um, And Alien Isolation really kind of captivates that for me or captures that for me in that this is really, in a lot of ways, has this capitalist sort of nightmare subplot yeah. to it, right? You're learning more about Wayland Dutani's competitor, which is Siegson, and you're seeing how the world outside of the xenomorphs of Alien has evolved around yeah. deep space and how they have sort of had these competing companies that are trying to basically beat one another to um, fully kind of colonizing out in space and all of this deep space travel and things and really capitalizing a monopoly. And it's really indicative of the sort of cynical nature that has always been a part of the Alien films in that just because technology has evolved 
and we've so much, supposedly so many years in the future, people have not changed that much. And I think to tackle that sort of subplot in Alien Isolation, it really rings true to the core of Alien, which was this very much like a blue collar kind of narrative in terms of like these truckers out in space. They're essentially being manipulated by the uh, the, the white collar executives that are making billions of dollars. Meanwhile, they're fighting over their sort of bonus situation and whatnot on this minor uh, work trip that they have. And this the game just explores that in a very engrossing way that I become more invested in the story of the environment more than Amanda. Like I said, Amanda's story, I think, is perfectly structural for the type of game yeah. this is. And of course, there's little Easter eggs and nods and filling in the backstory or plausible backstory. And yet I'm more engaged in kind of exploring the station and it fuels my wanting to explore it more so than I should, putting myself in danger to find that email, to find that audio log. And that's an element that I definitely appreciate more and more. Yeah, that's it. And I think you could only do so much with Amanda's story because we know how it ends effectively. You know, she doesn't find her mother. She, I mean, that would have been, you know, they would have changed everything to do that. And they clearly want to keep it as in-universe as possible. Like that. So it, you knew it's not going to be a successful mission. And really that's kind of abandoned after a while. As, uh, the, the mission just becomes then surviving and that's it yeah. and that's all we're all sort of uncovering why this has happened more and more as you go through I mean they didn't have to go through that like little bit but it, it was really kind of cool that they did the little flashback bit where they went to find out well how did an alien end up on here you know that sort of thing and it's like that and then to go back to such an iconic place in going to the derelict ship you know again for a bit was a nice it's an interesting way of doing it because you could shoot on that in a lot of ways but they could have sent you know Amanda there and made that part of the story but they didn't and I'm glad they didn't and made it like that and it, but it was nice as well to have that sort of bit to go you know we know you want it we know you want us to, to wander around the derelict ship and I think either DLC goes back into that where there's a lot of you know different ways of doing things, different size stories you can go and do with other people who've been on the place. And then also the uh, DLC that allows you to go back to the Nostromo and, and hang around there for a bit. You know, it's like, that's kind of cool. You know, you're playing like a mini version of Alien itself. It, it's, you know, while not as effective and as good as the main game, to, you kind of wish the alien wasn't there a lot of the time because to wander around the Nostromo like that, which you know you go back and watch the film and look at that again, and you're like, wow, yeah, they they've done a brilliant job of capturing that, you know. It's like, you know, and having all the cast there and things like that. And it's yeah, it's <laughs> it is just a shame. Unfortunately, the alien has to turn up and you have to deal with that. But <laughs> yeah, they did really well the DLC stuff. Like and those sort of scenario modes they had where you know you have to get through this, this, and this in a certain you know, way, and yeah, it was a good expansion on that existing story. Yeah, I just want to go back to the flashback for a minute because I just replayed that section the other night, and it's such a fantastic handling yeah. of it, right? I mean, it is pure fan service. Everybody wants to explore that derelict ship, and the decision not to have Amanda be the one to do it. I think it's fantastic because it doesn't bring the uh, momentum of her story to a yeah. grinding halt. I cannot imagine if they had had her do it because then that kind of just like throws an extra 
pacing wise an extra three hours probably into the game this idea you have all this build up and now we have to go down to the planet and then we have to go right back up to the ship basically and how they would even figure that out I don't know but the fact that it's a fantastic interactive example of um, show not tell storytelling right because Marlo could tell us about that when we're interrogating him but no we're going to show you instead and I mean, of course, getting to really like live that moment, that iconic moment of kind of coming over the hill, you breach the storm and there's the derelict ship there is, I mean, it's pure fan service, yeah, but I love yeah, it every just, single time. <laughs> you can't help but be a sucker for it. It's just, it is handled in a very similar way to how it is in the films where you see it. It's just like, wow. Yeah, it's like so well done. And I do need to go back and play the, uh, the DLC, which I've somehow never managed to play, but I'm really looking forward to that as well. But um, it, something you said a moment ago about Amanda's story being plausible. And I think that, again, like the subplot that I mentioned, what I love so much about it is, is that it provides an explanation for why the ship yeah. is basically barren. And I love that because the first time I played the game, I for I probably because I was running for my life, I missed an email. And on the, my most recent playthrough, I found an email from a journalist that is basically like embedded on the Sevastopol yeah to basically expose the Sikhs and companies kind of mismanagement of yeah. the station. And they said like in one of the graphs from their uh, report, it was asking where did billions of investment go if there's only a 10th of the capacity living there and no one is ordering their droids. And so that's such a simple kind of like narrative thing, but it provides so much context to something that initially I was thinking to myself, okay, yeah, Xenomorph showed up, but it's killed how many millions of people could potentially live on this station. And I was like, oh, it's a video game. I'll look past that. But on this playthrough, it really highlights that it from the ground up or from maybe the atmosphere up, uh, Alien Isolation is a very plausible chapter within the Alien and Aliens storyline. And it's one that at no point do I really feel this is just an excuse to revisit a universe that people are interested in. It doesn't feel shoehorned in is what I'm saying. Like in... I think maybe that was my fear going into it. It's like, oh, of course you're going to play her daughter. Like, why wouldn't you? But at the same time, they really like make it plausible and they make it believable in a way that it allows you to organically be introduced to that world. And then it allows it to feel like a breathing world until you're basically running out of breath as you try to run from the xenomorph. Yeah. And the most remarkable thing has always been it was made by a team that didn't make games like this. You know, they made strategy games. You know, you know, their next project sounds vaguely similar to this one. So that'll be interesting to see, especially if it's not the alien license to see how they uh, deal with that. I'd imagine it isn't, given there's, a, there's already an Aliens game coming to this summer. So, yeah, but to pull it off like that the first time, like that, and... You have to think that again. We've, we've talked so many episodes now, but so much influenced Capcom's uh, revival of Resident Evil, and this is key amongst them, those things. Yeah, because yes, other horror games, indie horror games, especially at that time, were doing the whole people chasing you, the stuff like Outlast and that. But they're so unsophisticated by comparison. You know, this this is a lot more complex and. Yeah, sure. You're always going to get people who, who sort of point out, oh, I can tell how this is happening and how that's happening. It's like, well, good for you. You, you, didn't, you didn't have the imagination to just go with it. You know, it's like, yeah, that, that's fair enough. People are going to do that. People are going to want to 
pick stuff apart to go why they didn't find it impressive so that's that's just the way things are <laughs> but um, it, I, I still find it remarkable that this team that had only ever done strategy games through the sheer love of something made this and made it you know possibly the best piece of Alien anything outside the first few films you know it, and uh, that's not you know, glib to say that that it is easily better than anything Ridley Scott has added to the universe since it's you know better than any of the AVP films <laughs> clearly you know, it's like, <laughs> or, and you know, any of the games so far before that have all been pretty much the same kind of thing they've gone for aliens rather than the alien vibe and hence why this is so surprising and different and it came at just the right time, I think, because it was that point where indie horror games were very much like that. To have one that had not only a bigger budget than those games, but also had the Alien license and used it so well, you know, mm. it made such it, such a big part of that early part of the generation, the console generation, uh, the PS4 and the Xbox One time. And... You know, it was for, for a few years into that generation, it was out and out my favourite game. You know, on on PS4, and it's still one of my favourite games now. It, it's just obviously you know, lots of quality things have come since, and even horror, other horror games have come and uh, sort of gone. Hey, I see what you did there, and we'll do that, and we'll add to that. You know, so we've had Tyrant, and you know, it it kind of seems odd now that people got very excited about the you know the Mr. X thing in Resident Evil 2 and it's like but you've seen this you, you have seen this before and to be fair as good as that can be it's nowhere near as sophisticated as isolation and it is only for a small portion of the game you know, so it's I think anything's ever done it quite as well and you know I think it's going to be a hard job the Aliens Fire seemed to have to follow that. I mean, the, they took the, the wise route, uh, the safe route, if you will, by going back to Aliens. But again, this that's a studio that looked like they, again, really care for the franchise and they, they're they focusing on Aliens in that regard. And they said, so when we were um, spoke with them uh, recently, when we were doing a preview, the uh, developer of uh, a fire team, they said, you know, we can't follow Isolation. We, we can't do that thing. After that, you have to do something different. And their idea was to go, well, you know, we'll, we'll, they're basically trying to write that wrong in a way of uh, what happened with Colonial Marines. You know, so, because you can make, especially now, you, you can make a team-based shooter you know, against aliens with Marines, and it could be good. And I think they could do that quite well. From what I've seen, even in the early footage, they're getting there, you know? So... Hats off, we might have two good alien games in a row. And that, that's quite remarkable after so, so many middling to terrible ones before that. Yeah, and I think that we started the conversation comparing isolation to Colonial Marines, but that's not to say, that's not to completely like write off the idea that you could have the aliens style mm. approach to an alien game. It's just that you need to be aware of the fact that you are going to make a game that needs to be in line and really capitalize on what makes Alien so yeah. unique. It's not just that the alien climbs on the wall a little bit, right? You kind of, you have to capture the essence of that. And of course, if it, this is going to be a multiplayer uh, team game, you need to really have honed in 
uh, team at strategy elements and things like that of that regard. But at the same time, you still need to make sure that it doesn't kind of just turn into this generic fodder. You need to have a lot of like the personality of the universe, whether it be represented in the environments or the characters and the weapons and the tools or the alien type. And with that uh, fire team, it looks like they're at least throwing in a variety of alien types. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're also creating some new ones maybe to kind of flesh out that pool, which I'm in favor of, right? This idea that you want to see them experiment in a way that might deviate from tradition but so long as it is in line with sort of the aesthetic and the genealogy to a certain extent of the uh, xenomorph then it could really make something that's interesting that works within the context of that i think early on i was maybe a little hesitant of isolation because i was like oh well is this kind of just taking the alien ip and then making this kind of like corridor crawler type game where you need to like peer around corners but no they really did capture the essence of i'm sure what anybody on the nostromo was feeling in that first film and to see them make something that feels so authentic and not kind of just be alien skin on top of like pretty weak stealth mechanics i think that this game would even if it didn't have the alien license and it was let's say an original horror Hmm. license of some sort or original ip then it would still be just as effective from a gameplay standpoint it is kind of just the icing on the cake that we get this alien IP and it, we get to associate this fantastic stealth gameplay with a world we love, characters we love, and a, an alien that we love. Yeah, and most importantly, it made the alien an intimidating force again, you know, which, as we were saying, has been the problem for so long. It's a sort of diluted the power. that you, you forget how powerful and otherworldly that, that, that creature can be. You know, and as much as aliens may have used multiples of them, it did it the right way. It made it so, like, yeah, these guys, you know, these Marines have all these weapons, they could do all these things, but look how easily they, they're tripped and beaten by these creatures uh, constantly. And Alien 3, again, just you know, a vicious monster that's just out to kill everything it can as violently as possible. And, yeah, unfortunately, later films just sort of lost that a bit, you know, even when Scott and you know he he made a slasher flick in a very different way you know he made one of the dumb ones rather than the uh, you know if Alien is like Halloween in space you know Alien Covenant is like Halloween by Rob Zombie you know it's like it's a it's just <laughs> missing the point somewhat of what made the creature so mysterious and so intimidating and to put you in the shoes of what it, you felt like back watching those films, you know, of how. It, uh, but you know, now you are the one having to escape it, and it's that I think is the, the thing that always will be its legacy. Is that it, you know, for a while there, it made the creature what it once was. Again, unfortunately, as I said, someone else came along and ruined that for a bit by making a film where <laughs> it wasn't quite there. But, uh, yeah, you know, we may never see a sequel proper to this, and we don't need to, really, I think. I think it, it's to find its legacy. We're, what, seven years away from from when it first released? And it still gets talked about fondly to this day, uh, not just as an alien game, but uh, as a horror game. You know, it's like... I, you know, I mean, it was up there when we were doing, like, uh, Best of the Decade stuff as well, uh, in terms of horror games. Yeah, you, you rarely hear many 
curse words about it beyond you know it's too long which you know, I get it I get it it's not for everyone in that regard and piece of you know when we had that sort of split between horror the games that leave you defenseless and horror games more that give you a fair arsenal but enough things to fight with it it's there in the middle a bit and not everyone's into that I get that but I, yeah I am so <laughs> yeah I was good. yeah me, me as well and I think that in regards to like whether we need a sequel I think the way the game ends is perfect right because it leaves the door open potentially but then at the same time I never think oh this isn't a satisfying mm-hmm. conclusion right it kind of I think that that is how you should leave games like this this idea that okay well this is not the type of game that we're going to give you another one or a follow-up in three years or something like that if we were to revisit it probably be like a decade later or something to that extent and so i just love that this game is so self-contained and again like i don't agree with the idea that it's too long because it gives you the front and the back half of the game are two very different experiences using the same sort of variables manipulated in a new way and yet i find that this is a game that i don't necessarily want to play another one of these so soon after i finish it right i think them exploring in more action-oriented alien game this summer with fireteam is the right way to go because, hey, this is giving us another sort of flavor of the same sort of uh, general ice cream that we all like. And I think that that's the way to go in regards to like, you don't want to over or uh, rather you don't want to kind of like dilute the new sort of angle that you're taking with these games that worked really well one time. I think DLC was probably the best way to go, right? It gives you just a little bit more and it taps in a little bit more of the nostalgia and the fan servicey moments but it still really captures the fantastic gameplay of isolation. And granted, that's not a full game. That's probably like three hours of content at the most, maybe, or something to that extent. And yeah, I think in terms of the longevity, there's a lot that can be learned from isolation. And I would be interested to see how they can take that and then maybe apply it into something that is a hybrid of the two, something that is more stealth oriented, but then it's also more yeah. action oriented. I mean, funny this week, um, at work, so did a preview thing for the game GTFO which to me kind of has the middle ground there. It's a co-op game you know, where you basically, like your prisoners who have to go down to the layers of this unmapped place and clear the place out of monsters and turn things back on again like that. And you know, generally you have to be as quiet as possible to avoid waking them all up and making them come after you. So you know mostly you're having to bludgeon these things to death. It, you know, with one hit kills if you can and yeah that and the whole you know you're searching for stuff to open doors and do access panels and things like that and at the same time if you do need to get into action you have the tools you know permanent tools like you know you can one of you can have a turret gun that could be deployed but yeah you have to make sure you take it with you when to the next pit otherwise you leave it behind and stuff like that and, mm. And say you do get into a situation where you get found out and you close the shutter between you and them, you can do everything you can to sort of barricade that door and make sure it's guarded. And that is in itself is very aliens, you know. To me, it has this very Mm. mixed thing between alien freeze, prison planet and aliens in terms of like, well, you've got guns and things like that. And so, yeah, I don't know. If anyone was able to make a game like that that was a middle ground, then that, that's a developer. That, they're the, I think they're the developer that worked on Payday as well. So it's, um, yeah. And yeah, so 
I think the atmosphere there is really good, and it's a lot of darkness and things like that. It, that sort of formula could work quite well. You know, they're, they're a developer that pretty much set with what they do. That you know, they're happy with catering to a small crowd who enjoy that sort of thing because that's a brutally hard game. And yeah, so I, that might be an interesting way to go if, if you wanted to do that. Well, you have definitely sold me on a GTFO. I'll have to check that out at some point. But uh, yeah, you know, I think with anything, isolation really stands the test of time of this idea that like the uh, the bar has been definitely raised uh, over the course of many years now, but far removed from the release of it. But in terms of like licensing mm-hmm. games and sort of like the precedent that has been set in that regard and licensed uh, movie games in particular are no longer this sort of laughing stock because it shows that if you in the hands of the right developer, even if they don't necessarily have the uh, the extensive sort of backlog of games that they've developed that were in the similar style, it kind of just shows that people that are obviously creative, but also people that have a real passion mm. for the sub the material is uh, is all you really need in terms of just like making something that is very viable for fans, and it makes for a game that could be an introduction to the films for a lot of gamers, like yeah. younger audiences that are getting their hands on the game, maybe now they're like, oh, okay, I can buy into this world and this universe and I want to know more about the Xenomorphs. I'll check out the films, even though I can't imagine how many people haven't seen (laughs) the Alien films, at least the originals, but you never know. Like, gamers, for the most part, like, it's a very young medium in a lot of ways. And so I love games like this serving as the uh, the introduction for something that people like you and I have been loving for decades. Yeah, and even so, like... um it's quite funny now that you know Fortnite's been doing this a lot recently and had a lot of characters including uh, the Xenomorph and Ripley as characters you know and um, you know, that's that's intrigued my son now because he wants to know about that and he wants to know about Terminator and all these things that have appeared and it's like well you're not quite there yet but you'll get there <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know so yeah it's, it's cool that those characters still have that sort of allure to them like that also, Predator, yeah, yeah, really, yeah. My, my son was very excited to do that. He got the Predator skin. Yeah, it's Fortnite's a weird one. You know, a game where you, know, you can <laughs> John Wick can fight Predator, can fight Neymar, and. <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, I'm looking forward to maybe checking out other games that are in a similar vein to Alien Isolation, like you mentioned, Outlast. I played the second one, but I never played the first one, and I think that the bar has obviously been set so high by Alien Isolation, but. I think in visiting some games like that that I'd never got a chance to play, it will, if anything, give me more of an appreciation for Alien Isolation and how it's definitely one of the decade's best, like you said, in terms of uh, that kind of discussion in terms of survival horror. But as always, Neil, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you. Yeah, and Alien especially. We will always uh, we will always find a way to chat about Alien. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at SafeRoomPod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.